Amen. Amen. I want you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to uh, just express gratitude to the worship team. They were here Thursday night for a lot of hours. I happened to stop by and kind of hang out a little bit. And uh, 7 o'clock this morning, I don't know where you guys were at 7 o'clock this morning, but they were all here and uh, preparing for a service. So uh, to them, thank you so much. Appreciate it very much. And, and I do have to say this. I was, I was standing here or standing there and Lucas was there and Lucas looked my way and winked. And I thought, what was that? And then I turned around and saw his wife standing pretty much straight behind me. I was like, okay, we're good. Okay. It actually made me very happy for you guys. And I mean that in the most sincere way. So awesome. First Corinthians 15 is where I'd like you to turn in your Bibles. Verses 1 through 3 is what I'd like to read for you to set uh, the stage for our discussion this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Paul says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly, that is, if you continue in the word that I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Believed what? Verse 3, for what I received, that is Paul received the transmission of the message of the gospel through the work of the Spirit. What I received, not what I created, but what I received from firsthand witnesses and from the power of the Spirit, I have passed on to you as of first importance. What is it, Paul? What is the most important thing? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. When I'm at public events, I have, uh, doesn't matter, I can be with my family, be with a group of friends. I have this thought in the back of my mind and it goes something like this. If I was given 10 minutes in front of this large group of people, it could be an athletic event, 40,000 people. I always think when I'm in that setting... If you had 10 minutes to speak to these people, what would you say to them? What, what words would you speak to a crowd of people of that size? What would be worthy of their attention? About 20 years ago, I was invited to a memorial service for a friend of mine whose name was Kenny Kashner, who was hit head on on a motorcycle and died on the scene. Went to the uh, memorial service that was held at the casino at Mountain Lake. I had no idea what that meant or what that was. When I got there, uh, I found that down the driveway behind the casino where their main parking lot is, there were about 35 to 40 pagans from the motorcycle gang, the pagans, from the Bronx chapter of New York City. And I'm dressed kind of like this. I go walking down there. I'm slightly intimidated. And uh, went for the ride over to the gravesite of my friend. Uh, and at the gravesite, uh, one of the main guys, his name was Comanche. Comanche said to me, uh, we want you to say something when we get back to the casino. I was like, gulp. <laughs> what, what, what would you say to people like that? What message of hope could you bring? To people whose goal in life is to live for and in rebellion. 
to make a statement, to fight against everything, to be known as bad people. I mean, bad. We got back there, and you know, the only thing I could share with them was what Christ had done for my friend Kenny. Told him the good news of Christ. I sensed that if the Apostle Paul was put in that position, that the Apostle Paul would flee to this message. Jesus Christ, in spite of the depth of your sin, has died for your sin. He was buried, and on the third day, He rose again to demonstrate that He is the authority and power to forgive you of all of your sin and to change your life by resurrection power forever. That's the message that I believe Paul would have shared that day when I was there 20 years ago. It's the message I did my best to share with these men. What is the message that Paul is sharing here? The gospel is the message of hope for all people. It is the message in verse 2 he can say, by this gospel you are saved. That is to indicate that there is some sense of promise and warning here. There is something from which we need to be saved, and the gospel is the means by which we are rescued from that impending doom. A warning and a promise. That if you believe this message, Christ crucified, buried, risen and coming again, if you believe that with all of your heart, that He did that for your sin, your eternal destiny is changed and your life today will be altered as to its course forever. That's the promise of this passage of Scripture. So my question to you this morning is this. If Paul would say that this is that which is of most importance, this is the primary truth that you need to know and to understand, my question to you this morning is this, very simply. Do you believe the gospel that Paul said was the message that would change your life forever if you believed? Do you trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? What I want to do this morning is work through the three components of the gospel that the Apostle Paul lays out here. The death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. All of which he says is according to the scriptures. Let's focus on the first thought then. The first thought he says is that Christ died for our sins. Now, if you go to the end of each of the historical narratives that record the death of Jesus, you will find in every one of the Gospels this statement. Jesus was crucified. Okay, there is unanimous agreement, not only in biblical writings, but in historical writings, that Jesus Christ, the man who claimed to be the Son of God from Nazareth, was in fact crucified On a cross. Now, we haven't had crucifixion practiced on planet Earth, not in an abundant way, for over 1,700 years. It was kind of put to an end by Constantine, the Roman emperor, in about 330 A.D. But this is how Jesus Christ was killed. It is how he died. Crucifixion was a brutal process that involved two steps. It was invented by the Persians and then perfected by the Roman Empire as a means of suppressing all opposition to the kingdom. Its purpose was to humiliate and to intimidate while in the process of doing those things, what happens? Inadvertently, not intentionally, but inadvertently, and I would say sovereignly, prophecies of the Old Testament are being fulfilled. Okay, that is the plan and wisdom of God. I want to talk to you first about crucifixion. It involved two major steps. One was a scourging that preceded it, and then the second thing was placing the individual on a cross. 
In John chapter 19 and verse 1, after Jesus Christ has been tried and falsely condemned, Pilate, the word of God tells us, had him flogged. The word that we would use today is scourged, beaten. Now, most of us have heard of the beatings with rods that happen in the Middle East. I don't know about you, when I hear those things, I cringe, beating with rods. But Pilate had Jesus scourged. Now, historical documents tell us this. The scourging was done with something called a cat of nine tails or a flagrum. Okay, it was a leather whip with typically nine uh, straps hanging out. On those straps, they placed things like this. Metal hooks, lead balls, pieces of broken bone, and glass. The person who was to be flogged had their hands chained up against the pole, exposing back, buttocks, and thighs. A Roman soldier would stand on each side of that individual and take that whip, sink it into the individual's back, and then rip it away with consequences that are devastating and brutal. That's what happened to Jesus Christ. The Bible says this, Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed. Now I I hesitate even to go into the details of what I read in study about scourging. But basically, the the end result of it was through the the lead balls and the hooks and the bone and the glass, the the back of the individual would become sensitized, would become tenderized, and eventually skin would hang literally in ribbons from the body. Bone exposed, muscle exposed, tendon exposed. Many would die from this cruel beating alone. Victims would often black out. Severe bleeding would take place. Difficulty breathing would ensue. Dehydration and many other physical, internal complications. And as if that was not enough, the individual was then given the crossbeam of the cross to carry. Estimates historically say that that weighed between 80 and 100 pounds. It was carried from the place of the judgment of Christ at the praetorium to the a place called Golgotha where Jesus is crucified, along a stone walkway called the Via de la Rosa. The Word of God tells us that Jesus Christ, from the physical beating, from being up all night, from being beaten, having a crown of thorns placed upon his head, and having it driven into his skull, from that, he was so devastated and exhausted that he falls underneath the weight of this cross beam. Imagine this. A back completely torn apart beyond recognition, falling to the ground. And they take Simon the Cyrene and have him carry the crossbeam to the place of crucifixion because otherwise the Savior would not even have made it to the cross. Once they get to a place called Golgotha, they lay the crossbeam on the ground and take spikes five to seven inches long and drive them through the most sensitive parts of the human body. Just at the wrist, through the two bones that connect to your hand, and then crossing the legs and driving a spike through the Achilles area. Purpose. So that once the individual is now hanging on the cross, they would feel excruciating pain because the whole purpose of the crucifixion was to torture the individual as a deterrent to crime. And the victim would then pull up on the spikes, push up on the feet to do what? In order to gain a breath. Because over time, the body would sag from the tiredness of the situation. The back that has been ripped open slides up and down against this crossbeam. Folks, that is what Jesus Christ endured for you 
and I. Once hung, the victim would labor to breathe. The body would often go into shock. Individual passing in and out of consciousness, pulling up on nails, shockwaves run through the body in an attempt to breathe. The pain was so awful that a word was created to describe it. It is the word excruciating. The word ek means from, crucifix, ex, crucifix. Pain coming from the cross. What Jesus Christ endured for you and I on Calvary's cross freely. What he chose. Remember what he says to the disciples? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Jesus Christ laid down his life to bear the consequence of our sin. The cause of death for someone who was crucified was twofold. One was potentially asphyxiation. Once the individual became so weak from the brutalizing effects of the nails and the beating they endured, they would begin to slump and their lungs, they would become unable to exhale the carbon monoxide that built up in their lungs and they would asphyxiate. Another way that people would die on the cross was as a result of the fluid that would build up, the serum that would build up around the heart and the periocardium sac. And that would eventually lead to a compression of the heart to a heart attack and ultimately to death. It is guessed by most historians that that is the way that Jesus Christ died. Because we know that after he has given up his spirit, they pierce him through the side up into the heart sack and water and blood run out, which would symbolize that this individual is certainly deceased. And so Jesus Christ is Crucified, fulfilling a few prophecies. One, Isaiah 52 and verse 14, it says this. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. That being a prophecy about the coming Messiah who would bear the sin of the world and pay the consequence of our rebellion. Psalm 34 and verse 20 says, not a bone of his body shall be broken, which brings us to this time at the end of the crucifixion process, the religious leaders come to the, uh, to the political establishment and say, we don't want to let him on the cross because technically we shouldn't have people on the cross going into the Sabbath. So they order that the legs of the victims of crucifixion that day be broken. When the legs were broken, the ability to push up and to gain breath would cease and the individual would slump and suffocate. That happens to the two criminals that hang, one on the left side and one on the right side of Jesus Christ. The executioner, professional and trained, then comes to the person of Christ. He ascertains that he has already died. And to certify death, pushes the spirit up through the side of Christ and out from his side, as I mentioned earlier, comes blood and water, certifying that this individual has deceased. Psalm 34 verse 20 says, not a, body, not a bone of his body shall be broken. Psalm 22 goes into an extended description of crucifixion hundreds of years before it was even practiced. And I just feel like I should note these things for you so that you know that the death of Jesus Christ is something that is predicted prior to this form of death happening. So that you will see that the death of Jesus Christ was according to the plan of God for our sins. Psalm 22 verse 14. He says, I am poured out like water. My heart has turned to wax. That's the picture of what fills the pericardium sac around the heart. It is melted away and all my bones are out of joint. A clear prediction of the way that Jesus would die. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue 
sticks to the roof of my mouth. And from the cross, Jesus issued these words, I thirst. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat at me. Verse 18, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. The soldiers, the Roman soldiers, gambled for the robe of Jesus. They talked about tearing it into pieces so that individuals could have different parts of it. But this robe was gambled for at the foot of the cross. Psalm 22 says the same. So there is clear evidence that the death of Jesus Christ by crucifixion, experiencing excruciating pain, what was what was prophesied in the Old Testament concerning the death of Christ. The question that I think we need to ask this morning is this. We see how he died, but why did Jesus die? Why did the Son of God come, take on human flesh, and in that flesh give his life? Why did that happen? Paul answers that question in verse 3. He says, Christ died for our sins and according to the scriptures. That is, so that his death would be certifiable as the Son of God. There were unique characteristics of that death that would in fact fulfill Old Testament prophecy about the Christ. Christ died for our sins. That can mean one of two things. He died for the benefit of or he died because of. And I think in this case you could very simply argue that this in this text, Paul is saying Christ died because of our sin. Why? Because as Carmel was speaking about a little bit earlier, God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. With God, sin is serious. And when we sin, a debt is incurred that must be paid. Romans 6.23 gives us the summary statement. It says, for the wages of sin is, in fact, death. From the beginning to the end of Scripture, the payment that God demands to satisfy justice and righteousness and holiness is death. Who did, whose sin did Jesus die for? I think this text makes it clear. Christ died for our sins. And I think Pilate makes it clear when he examines Christ on the eve of the crucifixion. Pilate's conclusion is, I find no fault with him. Judas, who betrayed Christ, took the coins that he paid to, to betray Jesus, threw them back into the temple and said of Jesus, I have betrayed innocent blood. Every one of the disciples who dies for the cause of Christ will later con commit themselves to proclaiming the innocence of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross as the means by which our sin debt is in fact paid. Jesus died this morning, understand this, for your sin. And for mine. He endured a brutal scourging and a brutal crucifixion to bear the price for my sin. Why? So that he could stand in your place and in my place as a substitute, bearing the consequence of my sin and yours. First Peter three eighteen puts it this way. It says Christ died for our sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us or make a way for us to come to God. Folks, when you look at the cross, please understand, it is not simply a, an example of sacrificial love. If you look at the cross and all you see is an well, it's just an amazing example of love, that somebody would do that, you do not understand the cross. Jesus Christ went to the cross not to simply leave us an example, though it does. He went to the cross for a specific purpose. 
Mark 10, 45, he says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve by giving His life a ransom, a freedom price, a payment for the sins of many. So when you look at the cross, please understand, it is not just an example of great love. It is that. But it is so much more. Many people have given their lives. No one has ever given a perfect life. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. And on the cross, he endured separation from his father and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because on the cross, he became sin, Paul would say, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Folks, here's the simplicity of the cross. The penalty that I deserve, he bore. The debt that I should pay, he paid. You know what that means? That means if you have trusted in the shed blood of Christ to bear away, to wash away by his shed blood the consequences of your sin, you are free. You are free from the consequences of your sin. You have been given a standing with God that you did not earn and could not earn because of love. He did it for undeserving people. Folks, listen. The people that I talked to at the casino 35 years ago or 20 years ago, whoa, that would be hard. 20 years ago, 35 to 40 of these pagans, you know what they needed to know? Yeah, you guys are rebels. But I want you to know that your friend Kenny Castanuber knew the Savior Jesus Christ and the same Savior that died for him died for you so that you, who nobody else thinks could have hope, you can have hope. This is the most important message. Christ died for you, for your sins. He was buried. And I just, I'll just touch on this very, very briefly, this, if you will, second phase. Christ was buried. The question that people ask is, was the death of Christ certain? Well, a Roman executioner certified the death of Christ, piercing the heart sack, water and blood pour out, which is a clear indication of complete heart failure and death. Joseph then took his body. Joseph, who John, I believe it's chapter 21, tells us was a secret believer and part of the religious establishment who refused to condemn him to death. He comes to Pilate after the crucifixion, seeing that the body of Christ is indeed dead and requests the body of Christ. He takes the body of Christ, takes it to his personal tomb. Now, he is a wealthy man, the Bible tells us, who is in the upper echelon of the religious establishment. And, and I want you to notice how Isaiah captures this set of events. Isaiah 53 and verse 9, it says, His body was placed in a borrowed grave. And I read the text. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Now you say, Tim, what does that mean? He was assigned a grave with the wicked. He was crucified as a criminal. Therefore, a grave with the wicked is the kind of death that he dies. But then he says this. He says, and with the rich in his death. Now, when is Isaiah writing? 720 some years prior to the death of Christ, he prophesies that Jesus Christ after his death, the Messiah will be buried in the tomb of a rich man. Isn't that amazing? To fulfill prophecy. That's where Christ is laid. He was buried with the rich, even though he died as an impoverished and poor criminal. Then Pilate, having been requested by the religious establishment, their concern is this. Hey, we have a concern that his disciples are going to come and steal his body and then say that he rose from the dead. So what does Pilate do? Pilate secures the grave with a 
set of Roman guards and with the seal of his authority. So there's a governmental seal and there is a, a, a political and, if you will, military protection placed at the tomb to do what? To ensure that that body stays in that grave. Now, here's what I love about that. Okay, that works in reverse. Because their concern was, he said he would raise from the dead on the third day, and we suspect that his disciples might come and take the body. So what do they do? They make the grave more secure so that the resurrection of power of Jesus Christ becomes what? It becomes more glorious. And I want you to notice what the text says then. Paul, in verse 4, says he was buried. And then on the third day, he was raised again according to the scriptures. Okay, meaning the resurrection of Christ is not only foretold in the words of Christ on numerous occasions. Luke 24, I was fascinated as I read through this this week. On three occasions, the disciples and the women are reminded that Jesus, said, that Jesus had said to them, I will die, I will be buried, and on the third day, what will I do? I will rise again. Three times he makes that prediction simply in the book of, of Luke chapter 24. Those words are brought back as a reminder. Okay, now the question that comes up next is, what about this claim of Paul? He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. Okay, this is the most amazing claim, because if Christ raises from the dead, then everything else that he says is verified and true. And if Christ doesn't raise from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, Paul says, if Christ isn't risen, then we have no hope. This truth of resurrection separates biblical Christianity from every world religion. No other world religious leader ever predicted that he would rise from the dead. No other religious leader ever has. Take the major religions of the world. Take Islam. Okay? Followers of Muhammad go to his grave to honor him today. Jewish people go to the grave of Abraham to honor him today. Followers of Buddha, Buddhist, go to the grave of Buddha to honor him today. I've been to that grave in Varanasi, India. It's there. Question. Why don't Christians go to the grave of Jesus Christ to honor his life? Why don't we do that? Why don't we go to the grave and honor Jesus at his grave? Why? He's not there. We have no reason to go to the grave to see the body of Christ, to, to honor Him in that place. Why? There is no body there. Every other world religious leader has a place where his body is buried and where he or she is honored. That is not the case with Christ. Now here's what I find absolutely fascinating. Is there evidence in terms of eyewitness historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Okay, Paul in verse 5 and following, gives us evidence, historical evidence, of the resurrection of Christ. And I'll just let me just draw back to Luke chapter 24 just for one moment. Because in Luke 24 and verse 1, here's what the Bible tells us. The women who the evening before, or, or I'm sorry, two nights before, the women who had watched where Jesus Christ was buried in Joseph's tomb, all right, they see where that takes place. On Sunday morning, they come with spices, to prepare his body for the final phase of burial. When they get there, what do they find? They find that the stone is rolled away, a witness from the angelic testimony that he is not here, he is risen just as he said. Why were the women coming to the grave with spices 
two days after the crucifixion of Jesus. Why was that? You know why? They expected to find the body. And they expected that they would anoint it and finish the preparation of it for its final burial. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, even for his followers who write the historical documents, it was unexpected for them. The women then run back into the town. Verse 11 of Luke chapter 24. They find the disciples. They tell them that the body's gone. And here's the response from the disciples. Luke, uh, Luke 24, 11 says, It sounded to them like nonsense. They, they, the women are saying, the body's not there. And they're looking at them like, that's bizarre. That's crazy. That doesn't happen. That's what they're thinking. But then, the resurrection of Jesus becomes undeniable. I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 6. Paul says, after that, appearances to some of the disciples and the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. And then here's what he says. Most of them are still living. And the question that comes to mind is this. Why would Paul say that there were 500 people who saw Christ resurrected at one time and then add some of them are living? Why would he do that? What is he saying? If you want to go and talk to the eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they are alive and you can go and talk to them today. Okay, otherwise that statement from Paul would completely invalidate the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay, his argument is Christ is risen. And you can verify and validate the resurrection of Christ by talking to those that have seen him alive. I think the greatest evidence, however, following here for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the life change that ensues in his followers. Thomas, a Jewish doubter, falls before the resurrected Christ and says, my Lord and my God. Peter, a fearful denier in verse 5 of our text this morning, is transformed, becomes courageous, and himself endures a crucifixion upside down because he refused to be crucified like the Savior Jesus Christ. His life was changed. James, one of the unbelieving brothers of Jesus Christ, becomes one of the writers of New Testament Scripture and a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because they had seen him alive. The Apostle Paul then lists himself. And here's what he says about himself. He says, verse 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle. That is a follower and teacher of Christ because I persecuted the church of God. Paul could look at his life, his own history, and say, I was a, a, a rebel against the cause of Christ. I was the least likely convert. And, but when he stands before Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, Agrippa is mystified that Paul would become a proclaimer of the name of Jesus. And he interrogates him as to why. Paul, why are you following Jesus? The answer from Paul is very simple. I saw him alive. And Paul was, from that point forward, a full-on, deeply devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Now, what I want you to notice as we conclude this morning is this. Those that were changed by the resurrection of Christ, those that were deeply affected by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ were not spectacular people, by and large. They were very average, common people. They were just like us. They knew what it was to fail. They knew what it was to sin, but they knew what it was to find in Jesus Christ the hope of forgiveness. And so, as, as Paul kind of draw the, draws this discussion about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the gospel, the good news to a close, what does he do? 
He points to himself and he says, look, I'm not deserving of being a proclaimer of the good news of Christ. I was transformed by grace. I was transformed by the shed blood of Christ that washes away all of my sin. That's the difference in my life. And so this morning, if you're here with us, here's something we would want you to understand. We don't, on Sunday mornings, compare our spiritual resume from the week to see how good we did. We don't try to impress God by living perfect lives. We know that we don't. We're people in need of the abundant grace of God to be forgiven. And that grace is made available through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Verse 10, here's what Paul will say. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. What is grace? Grace is the undeserved favor of God that comes to everyone who is willing to recognize their sin. It is the means by which God freely washes away our sin through the blood of Christ and gives us the hope of heaven. That is what grace does. It doesn't say you have to perform. Grace transforms. Grace changes. And the resurrection power of Jesus Christ comes into our lives and makes an abundant and glorious difference. Paul is saying that, look, we as Christians are not good people. Paul could say, I persecuted the church of Christ, but I am what I am by the grace of God. I owe the change in my life to the grace of God. Now, you may have come here this morning thinking, yeah, but pastor, I have secrets. I have failures in my life. I have struggles in my life. Can I be forgiven? Here's what I want you to know. You know why God saved the Apostle Paul? Because he was the greatest rebel against the cause of, of the church of Christ. He persecuted the church, stood by giving approval to the death of Christ's followers. And that's why in this text, he says, I don't deserve to be an apostle of Christ. I don't deserve to be a pastor. And I'll tell you this this morning. I don't deserve to stand here and tell you this good news. But I can because of the grace of Christ. It's exactly what Paul's saying. I persecuted the church, but I am today what I am by the grace of God. Folks, Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you would not have to. Jesus Christ paid your sin penalty so that you would not have to. And Jesus rose again to show you that if he can conquer our greatest fear, which is death itself, then he can handle any problem that is present in your life. Here's the way that Peter would later say it. Peter who doubted and was convinced about the resurrection of Christ. He said this. He said, praise be to God our Father. And to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. That is, he has given us this favor and caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now what is Peter saying? Peter is saying, if your heart has been transformed by the grace of God, if you know what it is to be forgiven of your sin and cleansed, you should be saying, praise be to God. Because through the power of the resurrection of Christ, he has changed my heart and given me hope, glorious hope, and a future. So I press you in this way this morning, because I believe that as a pastor today, this is my job, to proclaim the death of Jesus Christ his burial, his resurrection as our only hope for lasting change. And then to press that a little bit further and to ask you this question. Have you this morning believed in the shed blood, in the cross work, in the burial, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? In spite of what you've done, he has power to save you today. And if you have never trusted him, I would urge you this morning 
I would urge you, like Paul does in this text, believe the good news that Christ died, that Christ was buried, that on the third day, Christ rose from the dead. Have you trusted him today? In verse 1 of this text, Paul says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. This morning, can you say to God, God, I am standing on the good news of Christ as my only hope. Do you know that? Have you taken your stand and believed the message? Verse 11, he goes on to say, Whether, it is, whether then it is they or I, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. So for the church in Corinth, Paul's writing to them to give them hope that comes through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you trusted him? That's the question I would press upon you this morning. And then I would just move in this direction also. How important is this message? How important is it for those of us that know Jesus Christ? And I think what I would say is this. I would say I believe this is the most vital truth for the Christian life. To know that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the power to change your life. Okay, look. The disciples, when they came and said, hey, he's not there, he's risen. It sounded like nonsense. But then Christ appears to them and what do they say? You know, Thomas falls at his feet and says, my Lord and my God. Peter becomes a, a, not a denier, but a faithful, powerful follower of Jesus Christ. The resurrection changed them. It changed them. It wasn't just a historical fact. It was, this was unexpected. This, N.T. Wright calls, the, he says, the resurrection is the game changer. Okay, now, he's the most famous historian on the topic of the resurrection in the world today. He has studied it thoroughly and he understands that if Christ is risen from the dead, that changes everything. Because what that means is this. It means we don't have to be afraid of anything. Not Roman swords in, the, in that old economy. Not cancer. Nothing. Nothing. Resurrection power in the church today, I believe, is underappreciated. And I believe it is why many of us, perhaps some people sitting here today, you live under a burden. You feel captured by sin. You, you want to be free from it, but you don't have hope that you can be free from it. The resurrection says this, you can be free. And when you are free, 1 Peter 3, 1, 3 says, when you are free, you're going to say, blessed be God and our Savior Jesus Christ. He caused me to be born again to a living hope through His resurrection from the dead. Now you may have come here today saying, I'll give God one last chance. One last chance in the context of my marriage. One last chance, perhaps as a student saying, I am tempted to begin to live a life of impurity, but I want to give God one last Can God change me? Can He defeat that sin that's present in my life and set me free for His glory? I believe men and women come into the house of God looking for hope and looking for answers. And for you, I want to say this morning, the resurrection matters when you believe. It is the power of God that changed the entire ancient world. And the lives of billions of people throughout history. Hope for salvation and forgiveness of sin. True change is found in Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he this morning, if you believe in him, will give you new birth through his resurrection from the dead. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?